sickle, bleeding saints and forest witches, the past unburied, the books unsealed, the old celebration returning. Hello, and welcome to my study. Please come in and have a seat. All the books surrounding you are those used to research our show, and the individual to my right here, along with managing domestic duties, serves as our reader for any passages that will be directly quoted from these sources. Her name is Mrs. Carswell. Hello. Actually, the book Mrs. Carswell will be reading from today is my own, or it's material that was supposed to be in my book, The Krampus and the Old Dark Christmas, but was excised as the publisher wanted to keep it shorter. So, a lost chapter revealed. You could say that. Anyway, I hope all our listeners will enjoy any new perspectives on Christmas it provides, especially our American listeners, as that's what the chapter focuses on, our forgotten holiday lore and traditions. It's nice to do the seasonal shows and help people get in the holiday spirit. It's like we're all celebrating together. I do like to see the old celebrations perpetuated. We do our best here. The Halloween decorations have all been taken down and replaced with evergreen boughs. There's a roaring fire in the fireplace, and Mrs. Carswell has even been baking cookies today, Christmas cookies. Honey spice cookies. I just took them out to cool. Oh, they smell delicious, and they're imprinted with a beehive image from an antique cookie mold or stamp, I guess. Oh, well, yes. That mold is very nice. I thought it was appropriate for you and for your cookies, the honey cookies. It is. It's very nice. I'm glad I found it. You know, it's pewter, though. I looked it up online, and pewter has lead in it. Uh, Yes, and tin. Well, with lead, I didn't think it was safe to use with food. That's what the internet said. There's not much lead in recent pewter. The stamp is only from the 1940s. It's not from the Revolutionary War. Still. You're saying you didn't use the stamp? No, but they're very tasty with or without beehives. And they're probably ready to try if you want to see for yourself. You know, life comes with risks. You have to live. Maybe with a little brandy? Christmas tree tinsel used to be made of lead. Have you ever touched Christmas tree tinsel made of lead? It's not like the mylar fluff we have today. No, and I'm not sure I'd want to. It had heft and substance. It hung under the tree like it meant something. And then come New Year, the Germans would melt a little of it down and drop it into water for fortune-telling. The Victorians used lead in everything. There were cast lead ornaments... You can't have a real Victorian Christmas without lead. It's part of the holiday. Well, the Victorians are all dead, and I didn't want us poisoned. It's fine. It's fine. The listing might have said something about being for display only. You... But I will uh... have some brandy. And cookies. They do smell good. (sighs) 
Okay, sounds good. And uh, so for this uh, lost chapter, episode 80, America and the Old Dark Christmas. Though it's only in the 21st century that the Krampus appeared in America, a German cousin of his was already roaming the land in the first decades of the 1800s. He was called Belsnickel, and like the Krampus, he usually appeared on St. Nicholas Day, carrying a whip with which to threaten or strike naughty children. He was found particularly in German-settled areas of eastern Pennsylvania, but also in Appalachian, West Virginia, Maryland, North Carolina, and Southern Indiana. His appearance could vary greatly, but in America, as in Germany, he was typically dressed in a long, ragged coat or cloak, a slouch hat or fur cap, and always wore a false beard, possibly a wig. He might also don a primitive cloth mask, or sometimes his face would be blacked with soot. Some accounts mention rattling chains or bells. While any of these descriptions differs from those elaborate horned masks and fur coveralls we associate with the Krampus today, it should be remembered that in the early 1800s that standardized visual presentation had not yet evolved. Even the name Krampus was likely not yet widely used, and the appearance of the Krampus at the time was probably not so different from Belsnickel. Fur is also often worn by Belsnickel. The original name of the figure in Germany was Pelznickel, often incorrectly translated as Fur Nicholas, as a Pelz can mean fur pelt. However, as with the previously encountered Pelzmeltel, Pelz here derives from Pelzen, meaning to beat. Like the Pelzmeltel, Pelznickel, which became Belsnickel, carried in his pocket or bag small treats which he would scatter over the ground. Naughty children trying to grab these would heal his whip. Some later accounts make the distribution of treats and blows more playfully indiscriminate or record that the Peltznickel would simply toss treats in through the door or window. But the original and traditional purpose of the Peltznickel's fearsome behavior was to foster good behavior. The Peltznickel was native to the southwestern part of Germany namely the Palatinate region along the Rhine, as well as nearby Saarland and the Odenwald mountains of Baden-Württemberg and Hesse. Because these areas were mainly Protestant, Belschnickel did not appear in the company of a saint, but himself assumed some of the same functions as Nicholas. Usually portrayed by a family member or friend familiar with the children's behavior, he could exhibit the saint's supernatural knowledge of children's deeds, both good and bad and is even described in an American account as carrying a book in which this information is said to be recorded. Like Nicholas, he might also put the children to the test, requiring recitations of memorized prayers, Bible verses, and the like. Although the Belschnickel's rather teasing game with the whip and scattered treats seems to have been normative behavior, a German volume from 1843 mentions less hands-on techniques, describing something more verbal with the Pelznickel telling the ill-behaved that he... 
will weight you down with heavy chains and take you deep into the forest and mountains, into a dark and damp cave where there is nothing but snakes, owls, toads, and salamanders. Though his visits seem to have been originally traditional to St. Nicholas Eve, Belschnickel also appeared on Christmas Eve alongside a girl or young woman betraying the Christ child. Here, he would assist by carrying the bag of gifts distributed by the Christkindl, or Christ child, as well as providing the usual intimidation. Playing down the significance of the saint's feast day, his appearance in Protestant countries on St. Nicholas Day was understood as heralding the Christkindl's arrival rather than commemorating the saint, and was an encouragement to children to ready themselves with their best behavior. The author of the above-mentioned account found this sort of preparation highly effective, commenting, For 14 days at least, all children in the German lands transform into genuine little saints. Perhaps because these visits were so effective or entertaining, they were often not restricted to December 6th, and Belsnickels were known to wander in both Germany and America throughout the days between St. Nicholas Day and Christmas Day. While the Belsnickel tradition went on to thrive among German immigrant communities in the U.S., and was still practiced in certain isolated regions up until around World War II, it did not fare so well in its native country. Always strictly regional in character, any character identified as Pelsnickel or related names, has been subsumed under the more modern internationalizing figure of the Weihnachtsmann, or the Christmas Man, a figure all but indistinguishable from the American Santa Claus. Classic descriptions of the Belschnickel in Germany usually described a solitary adult performer, but occasionally the role seems to have been taken up by younger males, often appearing in groups. Upon migrating to the United States, the tradition increasingly assumed the latter form. In rural areas, the Belschnickel still tended to travel alone, bringing small gifts for good children and threatening the disobedient. However, particularly in more urban areas of more mixed populations, the Belschnickel tradition mingled with mumming traditions brought from England. Under this influence, the Belschnickel appeared in troops, usually consisting of younger performers, and rather than bringing rewards for younger children, the performers, like the English mummers, came to expect handouts from the households visited. The tradition was increasingly disassociated from the idea of reviewing children's behavior, and instead began to rely on crude skits, rhymes, singing, and musical performances to generate gifts. The earliest mention of the Belschnickel in the United States appears in a December 23, 1823 issue of the York Gazette and refers to a plurality of Pennsylvanian Belschnickels warning the performers to keep within limits of a specified area. That the character was perceived as increasingly unruly is made clear in an 1826 article in the Pottstown Lafayette Aurora describing the figure as a mischievous hobgoblin that makes his presence known to the people once a year by his cunning tricks of fairyism. The author then goes on to playfully describe the rather destructive work of these nocturnal pranksters and the surprising leeway they were allowed. 
I beheld a complete bridge built across a street, principally composed of old barrels, hogsheads, grocery boxes, wheelbarrows, harrows, plows, wagon, and cartwheels. It is reported that he nearly demolished a poor woman's house in one of the back streets a few nights ago. He performs these tricks incognito, or otherwise, he would be arrested long since by the public authorities, who are on alert. But it will take a swift foot and a strong arm to apprehend him while he is in full power of his bell snickleship, as he then can evade mortal ken. Increasingly, the bell snickle was described in negative terms. In the diary of James L. Morris of Morgantown, Pennsylvania, the shopkeeper notes that on Christmas Eve, 1844, some four or five hideous and frightful-looking mortals came into the store dressed out in fantastic rags and horrid faces. As the devils are visiting a retail establishment, it seems clear that these Belschnickels are no longer providing gifts or discipline for children, but simply seeking handouts, likely part of what makes them so frightful to the shopkeeper. Referring to those playing Belschnickel, Lancaster, Pennsylvania's Daily Evening Express of December 26, 1873, describes a level of aggression which today might be prosecuted as breaking an entry. The paper comments bitterly on the number of revelers who are dressed in hideous disguise, going out on Christmas Eve from house to house and entering without so much as a buy or leave. By 1873, a reader's letter published in the Pottstown Ledger declared that the problem was worse than ever and that Belschnickels annoyed people with their horrible attempts at singing, making themselves odious throughout the town generally. This bell-snickel business, which is becoming more of a rough and rowdyish observance of the Christmas season each year, might as well be omitted altogether. By the turn of the century, the custom had spread beyond Christmas to New Year and could still be fraught with dangers. An article from a 1900 issue of the Harrisburg Telegraph discusses the sad consequences of the bell-snickling of a party of boys who ventured out not only costume, but also carrying guns, a not uncommon noise-making aid to the revelry. Having just left the house, a revolver was discharged into the forehead of one of the Belschnickels, who was instantly killed. The figure continued to make appearances through the turn of the century, but by the war years was dying out or cultivated into other forms. After a 1955 outing of Belschnickels in Fredericksville, Pennsylvania, no further mention of a continuous tradition appears in the record. Only later in the 21st century have scattered attempts occasionally been made to revive the custom, but primarily as a sort of living history demonstration associated with some cultural institution. The Belschnickel survives also as a regionalist icon for Pennsylvania, lending his name, for instance, to the Belschnickel Lager with wintry hints of plum, raisin, ginger, and cinnamon, brewed by Stout's Brewing Company in Adamstown. And in the American television series The Office, set in Scranton, Pennsylvania, the character Dwight Schrute demonstrates his regionalist pride, attempting to host a Pennsylvania Dutch-style office party and dressed as a bell snickel in the episode Dwight Christmas. Oh, 
Svechnikel has traveled from distant lands to discover how all the boys and the girls have been behaving this last year. <laughs> oh, too much strudel. So he's kind of like Santa, except dirty and worse. No, much better. No one fears Santa the way they fear Svechnikel. How? In the German immigrant communities of southern Indiana, the tradition seems to have existed in both forms those emphasizing the children's moral improvement and those rowdier outings by gangs of costumed youths. Eberhard Reichmann's Hoosier German Tales mentions an account from Brookville describing a more edified presentation of a bellsnickel who came at times with Chris Kindle, played by a gentlewoman, while a December 11, 1891 account from the Jasper Weekly Courier remarks upon the aggressiveness of the Belsnickels and the extreme leeway granted, noting, While the boys were technically guilty of assault and battery, it has never been thought anything of except an exhibition of rough fun and boisterousness. Sometimes the fun veered toward the body, as reported December 10th, 1897, by the same paper, noting how one of the devils caught a confectionery lady in his arms and kissed her, and about 20 of them visited Mr. Hunter's, where a number of young girls had met and drove the neuralgia away from the host's head by compelling his laughter. In Maryland, it seems the tradition could be understood somewhat differently and sometimes involved cross-dressing. In Brown's Miscellaneous Writings, Essayist Jacob Brown describes Allegheny County customs from around 1830 treating a number of the Christmas figures rather interchangeably. He was known as Chris Kinkle, Beltsnickel, and sometimes as the Christmas woman. The latter generally wore female garb, hence the name Christmas woman. The simultaneous distribution of treats and whipping, however, seems consistent with other accounts. And Brown notes how the Beltsnickel, with one hand, would scatter goods upon the floor, and then the scramble would begin by the delighted children, and the other hand would ply the switch upon the backs of the excited youngsters, who would not show a wince. But had it been parental discipline there, there would have been screams to reach a long distance. A peculiar species of Belschnickel can also be found in South America, in the state of Santa Carita in Brazil. Beginning in the late 1820s, the region was settled by German and Austrian immigrants who, to this day, make up the dominant ethnic group of the region. In certain towns like Pomeroja, German is spoken by the majority of residents, and the town of Blumenau is widely known for its Oktoberfest, which, after Munich, is the world's largest. The town of Guaviruba, colonized principally by the residents of Baden, Germany, is particularly known for its preservation of the Pelsnickel custom, so much so that it is sometimes even referred to as the land of Belsnickel or Pelsnickelland. Instead of a ragged winter coat or furs, however, the Guabiruba Belsnickels, who are said to live in the nearby rainforest, appear covered in moss and other tropical vegetation, accessorized with the conventional mask, horns, and chains now associated with the Krampus. They row about on December 6th in the company of a traditional St. Nicholas, and again on December 24th in the company of an angelic Christkindle, a Christ child, sometimes also accompanied by a sack man with his bag for whisking away naughty children. 
In Pennsylvania, as the Belschnickel tradition grew and mingled with that of the mummers, the term began to be used to describe any costumed figure parading over the holidays, especially on New Year. The term fantastic or fantasticals was similarly also interchangeably used to describe these costumed merrymakers, as was the older term shooters, originating with the noise-making custom of shooting in Christmas. Those who practiced this old world tradition, also common to New Year, not only carried and fired guns, but were also often costumed, and this term was extended to refer to any costumed revelers, whether they carried guns, pots and pans, or bells, or no noisemakers at all. Similar groups of young men using traditional musical instruments as well as crude percussion to create an intentionally discordant sort of holiday music, especially in New York, went by the name Calithumpians, originating with the 18th century British word Galathumpian, describing a heckler or disruptor of parliamentary elections. Perhaps the oldest American term for such things already in use in Boston by the late 1700s was antics, a name for the performers described by Pennsylvania Senator Samuel Breck in his diaries as a set of the lowest blackguards who, disguised in filthy clothes and oft-times with masked faces, went from house to house in large companies. Eventually, the German name Belsnickel fell from use in favor of the English, and therefore more patriotic, word mummer. The York, Pennsylvania Republican provides evidence for this attitude, quoting an 1840 lecture on the topic of Christmas, during which the speaker disparages the horrid Belsnickels, a word so foreign to the festivity of generous antiquity, as it is strange to English orthography and excruciating to sensitive ears. Traces of this history are preserved in the annual Philadelphia Mummers Parade, in which costume performers, still known as shooters, parade every New Year's Day. Despite its municipal institutionalization in the early 1900s, the event is often described as the oldest folk festival in the U.S. It has roots not only in the Belschnickel and UK mumming traditions, but also in the earlier home visit customs of the second Christmas celebrated December 26 by the Swedes and Finns who first settled Philadelphia in the 17th century. Sadly, the event's long and interesting history is today often overshadowed by questions of racial insensitivity. Though the parade's origins were ethnically and racially diverse, the exclusionary treatments of blacks earlier in the 20th century led to its current de facto segregation. Particularly divisive has been the issue of blackface makeup used by performers. In the parade's current form, this is strongly associated with minstrel traditions and thereby America's antebellum history of slavery. Though masquerades, as they were called, had already been banned by the city as early as 1808 as common nuisances, inability to enforce the law over the following decades resulted in its repeal in 1858. In 1833, the Philadelphia Daily Chronicle describes a typical Christmas Eve and its riot, noise, and uproar produced as gangs of boys and young men howled and shouted as if possessed by the demon of disorder. Originally associated with Philadelphia's Christmas around the turn of the century, the practice of mumming was expanded to New Year's. Writing a few years earlier, in 1839, Lutheran minister Henry Mullenberg comments irritably on what was often taken to be a first description of the Mummers Parade in its earliest form. Men met on the roads in Tinicum and King Sessing 
who were disguised as clowns, shouting at the top of their voices and shooting guns. The manic gun-blasting clowns here are often understood to be a form of belschnickel. By the 1860s, much of the noise-making centered on the multitude of horns blown on Christmas and New Year and increasingly supplied on-site by vendors serving those who had arrived unprepared. A storm of editorials appeared, likening the racket to the devil's own handiwork, and by 1868, Philadelphia's Carnival of Horns, as it was called, was banned for the first time, only to resurface and continue unabated till a second ban passed in 1881. An 1868 account from the Lebanon Courier follows a correspondent in Philadelphia as he makes his way toward 8th Street on New Year's Eve. Here, it seemed as if all pandemonianism had been let loose. Parties of hideous-looking Belschnickels now paraded the street, many of whom had tin horns, which they were continually blowing, making a noise like the braying of a thousand country brass bands. A writer for the Philadelphia Times in 1878 even resorted to medical argument in an effort to deter the horn-blowing, warning, Small boys in tooting Christmas horns should know that the vaccinator muscle is often destroyed entirely when strained too heavily. By the 1880s, Philadelphia's municipal authorities tried another tactic. Rather than fighting to suppress the festivities, they moved to regulate and co-opt the activities. Guns were removed from the picture, and gangs already making appearances in the streets would need to register and comply with certain requirements in order to receive necessary permits. In 1901, the first city-sanctioned Mummers Parade was organized, and cash prizes were offered for standout costumes and performances. In many ways, the process resembles the roughly contemporaneous conversion of rowdy nocturnal Pershten activities in Austria's Gestein Valley to municipally supported daytime parades featuring more elaborate Tafelpersten. Likewise, official recognition in Philadelphia, not to mention cash prizes, drove the transformation of rough costumes worn in previous centuries into today's ornate costumes, some so large as to require the aid of wheeled supports when worn. In New York City, where Christmas and New Year were just as riotous, eventual pacifications followed a pattern closer to the Europeans' introduction of St. Nicholas as an agent given control over wild Pershton, which later became the Krampus troops. A single account from an 1828 issue of the New York Advertiser should suffice to illustrate the extent to which the holidays opened the doors to mob violence. The story tracks the destructive rampage of a Calathumpian group equipped with the usual drums, tin kettles, rattles, horns, whistles, and a variety of other instruments. As it begins in the Bowery, it can be assumed the noise-making procession, if not organized by one of the neighborhood's notorious gangs, at least surely contained gang members. As the Calathumpians headed out from the Bowery, they stopped to pelt a brick tavern, until they had changed its color from red to white. Then the Calathumpian headed into the main commercial district, smashing crates, barrels, and shop windows. Gathering followers as they went along, they were about 4,000 strong when they reached the tip of Manhattan around 2 a.m. After unsuccessful attempts to demolish iron fences surrounding Battery Park, they 
contented themselves with throwing over a cart and breaking some windows in one or two of the dwellings. Returning to Broadway, they engaged in a standoff with hired watchmen, forcing them into retreat. Eventually, the mob began to divide along different routes, slowly dispersing itself until... The uproar gradually diminished toward morning. Just as in the Krampus' native land, where the figure of St. Nicholas served the purpose of control, the escalation of New York's holiday crisis came with the creation of the American figure of Santa Claus. His introduction helped shift the holiday's focus away from the streets and the carousing of young unmarried men into the domestic sphere and gift-giving rituals centered on family and children. This transformation is deftly documented by historian Stephen Nissenbaum in his The Battle for Christmas. Far from organic, Nissenbaum describes the process as a strategic work of a small group of antiquarian-minded New York gentlemen. The first of these gentlemen was John Pintard, who in 1804 founded the New York Historical Society, promoting Holland's old patron saint, St. Nicholas, as icon of the society and the city. Pintard hosted elaborate St. Nicholas Day banquets for the society, printed Nicholas broadsides, and staged with his own children old-world-style visits by a costumed saint. He'd hoped that his enthusiasm for these customs, once embraced by his upper-class colleagues, would trickle down into lower-class practice. Though he himself came from a French Protestant background, Pintard blamed the city's problems on Protestantism's suppression of religious festivals at which mechanics and laborers could more respectably release their pent-up energies. However, the Dutch Sinterklaas he promoted does not seem to have been borrowed from among the Dutch families of Pintard City, though Nicholas customs may still have been practiced in Holland after its conversion to Protestantism, they do not seem to have been robust enough in their home country to survive passage to the United States. Finding no historical mention of such New World practice prior to Pintard's promotion of the customs, Nissenbaum argues for its top-down dissemination, beginning with Pintard's romantically paternalistic view of a Catholic world that was never his own. In 1809, at the same time, Pintard began talking up his favorite saint, fellow New Yorker, and occasional visitor to Pintard's historical society, Washington Irving, published under the pseudonym of Diedrich Knickerbocker, his satirical A History of New York, also known as A Knickerbocker History of New York. In emphasizing the quaint and provincial nature of New Amsterdam's Dutch settlers, Irving sprinkled his text with references to St. Nicholas, including a brief mention of a rather plebeian Nicholas delivering presents in a flying wagon. Irving's characterization moves the character further from Pintard's gift-giving ecclesiastic and closer to the figure we know today. Nissenbaum writes, The Knickerbockers felt that they belonged to a patrician class whose authority was under siege. From that angle, their invention of Santa Claus was part of what we can now see as a larger, ultimately quite serious cultural enterprise, forging a pseudo-Dutch identity for New York, a placid folk identity that could provide a cultural counterweight to the commercial bustle and democratic misrule of early 19th century New York. Providing the foundational text for this movement was a friend of Washington Irving's, Clement Moore, 
who, as the author of the 1823 poem, A Visit from St. Nicholas, largely defined the figure of Santa Claus as we know him today. Moore's verse borrowed certain traits from Irving's Knickerbocker history, including giving his Santa Claus a playful nature unlike the traditional Bishop Nicholas. From Irving, Moore also borrowed the pipe-smoking habit, a flying vehicle, and even the knowing gesture. Laying his finger aside his nose. In our context, what is significant about the poem is how it stealthily addresses the unwelcome, yet tolerated and encouraged by tradition, visits to more well-to-do homes by lower-class mummers demanding handouts. Dissenbaum notes Moore's characterization of Nicholas as... A peddler just opening his pack is the kind of man who might have come to visit a wealthy New York patrician on Christmas Eve. To startle him out of his slumber with a loud clatter outside his door, perhaps even to enter his house, uninvited and unannounced. Christmas customs of the day, Nissenbaum says, so encouraged these disturbances that more had to devote fully one-third of his poem to offering the reassurance that the people who had received visits from this figure of the night would have nothing to dread. Rather than offering handouts to frightening maskers, mummers, or bellsnickels, in this new vision of Christmas it is children dreaming of sugar plums who become the focus of the good things that Christmas brings. The compunction of seasonal charity towards those of lower status is maintained but no longer directed toward visitors from the lower classes or young males from outside the family, but instead retained within the home. This shift corresponds with certain social changes, namely the appearance of a middle class suddenly able to treat the child not as an extension of the industrial or agricultural workforce, but as an object of indulgence and instruction. One last interesting aspect of the poem is its description of Santa Claus's appearance. He was dressed all in fur, from his head to his foot, and his clothes were all tarnished with ashes and soot. Is Moore here attempting to evoke the image of the soot-faced, fur-wearing Bellsnickels? Though we might certainly argue that soot is the natural consequence of struggling through a chimney, and warm fur is simply a prudent choice for flying through windy winter skies, the resemblance is intriguing. A connection to Bellsnickel is often also mentioned in the context of the iconic illustrations of Santa Claus rendered by cartoonist Thomas Nast from the 1830s through the 1880s for Harper's Weekly. As these represent the other critical force in locking down the image of the figure we know today, it seems worth mentioning. Much is made over Nast's birth in Germany, and in particular that he was from the German Palatinate, the region where the Belsnickel originates. I don't see much case for this, however, as Nast's illustrations in fact do away with the Belsnickel-like sootiness of Moore's poem, as well as most of the head-to-toe fur, leaving only a fur cap and otherwise outfitting the character in something resembling long johns, only later modified to resemble the suit familiar today. And uh, that's where the manuscript suddenly ends. It's like the captain's log on the ship, blood dry by Dracula. I don't have more to read, and I don't like to jar our boat and sickle listeners with abrupt endings. And as it's Christmas, I'd like to add one last sugar plum in the stocking here. It's a very early recording of Santa Claus, or the actor Harry Humphrey, hired by Thomas Edison's company to 
play the part for a recording, which was made in 1922. This, of course, was in the days before talkies, and when radios only were just starting to appear in a few homes, so there would have still been something magical about artificially reproduced sound. It's been suggested that this was released around Christmas so that a family that had just purchased one of Edison's phonographs might play a little trick on the children, not equated with these technical marvels. The recording, which is uh, certainly not in the least bit creepy, is called Santa Claus Hides in Your Phonograph. And I'll leave you with that. Merry Christmas to all. Hello, little folks. Do you know who I am? You've heard of me often. Some say I'm a sham. <laughs> but most of you know that cannot be true. For every Christmas you've seen what I do. And now you not only know just what I do, but you hear my old voice as I'm speaking to you. Who is it, you say? Hush, close all the doors and I'll tell you a secret. I'm old Santa Claus. <laughs> Perhaps you're curious to know why I hide in this phonograph. For I'm right here inside. <laughs> I'll tell you, my dear, if you give me your word that you won't tell us soul about what you have heard. You've seen Santa's picture quite often, I'm sure, with his great big white whiskers half down to the floor, and his ruddy red cheeks, and his jolly old smile, and often you wished you could see him a while. But children, though I'd love to come out of this box, I'm really afraid to, because of the shocks that all of you get if you saw me come out. Why, you'd all run away with a terrible shout. <laughs> my beautiful whiskers are black with the dirt, and the dust in my eyes so that both of them hurt, and my lovely red robe with its trimming of white is as black as the black of a black winter's night. <laughs> and it's all because I have to climb down the many long chimneys you have in this town. Before I can possibly come out and greet you, I must take a warm bath, and then perhaps I'll meet you. Don't think that I mind getting dirty like this, for it's something I'd really be sorry to miss. I have to go down all these sooty old places to bring gifts to the children and smiles to their faces. But before I get out and disappear soon, I'll give you a treat. It's a bit of a tune that I'll play on my chimes that I've got with me here. So listen, dear children, to some real Christmas cheer. get out of this box. Mm. There. My, that was a tight squeeze. Come on now. Up, Prancer. Way. Good night. Good night. Good night. <laughs>
Ha, 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 ha,